Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Today's episode features two interviews recorded during the Atlanta ACG Capital Connection. For the first, I spoke with Jim Douglas, a partner with Fulcrum Equity Partners, about his firm's investment strategy, attractive healthcare subsectors, and how Atlanta became a hub for fintech innovation. For the second half of the episode, I spoke with Scott Lynch, a managing partner with DHG Private Equity. I asked him about the middle market deal environment in the Southeast and about changing revenue recognition standards. We ran a story about those changing standards on our website last fall, and it quickly became one of our most read articles of the year. So I asked Scott for more color around how PE firms and their portfolio companies are thinking about that change. So here are those interviews with Jim Douglas up first. Jim, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So to start, can you give an overview of Fulcrum Equity Partners and the types of companies that you invest in? Yeah, so Fulcrum, we're investing out of our third fund, which is a $204 million growth fund. We really invest in, in two sectors, um, healthcare services and technology, and then general B2B SaaS and recurring revenue technology. Um, those businesses are horizontal in nature on the B2B SaaS side. They could run any part of the enterprise, but it's typically software that runs something within the enterprise from marketing services to security to logistics, things of that nature. Um, we usually invest five to can be put up to 20 million in any one company. Um, and um, we're about halfway invested through this fund. We have four partners. Uh, we all have a unique operating background. Um, myself is in the technology industry, and my other partner, Frank Dalton, also out of the technology industry, so we spend our time there. Uh, and then my other two partners, Jeff and Tom, spend their time on the healthcare side. So we kind of bring an operational growth fund focus to the industries we participate in. And do you have a geographic focus at all? Are you looking for companies here in the Southeast or all We're across the country? Kind of up and down the East Coast into okay. Texas. And we look in the Midwest as well. You know, we don't do anything in California. We kind of look at it and go, there's plenty of capital there. So if there's, if we're looking at a business out there, there must be something wrong. So we, that, other than that, so we're pretty broad. Are there subsectors within healthcare that you're finding particularly attractive right now? Yeah, so all the sectors around supporting outsourcing operations of the healthcare system are pretty good right now. Staffing businesses around the healthcare system, so emergency room staffing, anesthesia staffing, um, home health and hospice is an area we've had success in and continue mm -hmm. to have success. The um, behavioral side, we've been in, had a f very successful investment in Fund 2 and the addiction treatment space. We've got another platform now in Fund 3. Um, so all those things around the healthcare ecosystem, including billing, we've got a revenue cycle management business. I'm particularly interested in the addiction treatment since that's something that has been in the news so much around the opioid crisis and has gotten a lot of mainstream attention. So I wondered if you could talk about the role that private equity investors are you know, playing in helping to increase access to addiction treatment. Yeah, it's, it's an enormous problem. Mm -hmm. It's a, you, know, you, you build a big business there and well, that's great, but the reason that big business was built is really not a great reason. There's just an enormous need. Um, and what you really want to do is make sure that your business is doing it in the right way, that you're working on providing outcomes that are meaningful, right? Mm -hmm. The industry has a horrible reputation for get, getting people out, not successfully treating them right back in six, back, yep. six months later. So we really focused in the last business we sold. We sold it to um, a large, successful private equity firm. It was a very attractive business because it was they were genuinely focused on providing 
as good an outcome as you can in that space. It's mm-hmm. a tough, it's not an easy task. So we continue to do that in the, in, in the next one as well. And are there other um, behavioral health investments that you've made? We haven't. We've looked. Uh-huh. I mean, there's all kinds of behavioral health in general, um, whether it's you know the academic life and the, for student life is an area that we've looked oh, at. There's there's all kinds of sectors. So it's a it's a space that we will continue to look at. And you spoke on a panel this morning focused on fintech in the southeastern United States. What type of innovation are you seeing, and and why is it happening here? Well, Atlanta's got a long history with fintech. Seventy five percent of merchant processing transactions go through Atlanta. No kidding. Yeah, you've huh. got First Data here. You've got Tesis here. Those are the two two of the big merchant processors. You've got Global Payments here, um, and then there's several other spinoffs of that. So, and that all happened back in the 70s and 80s. A company was built here, which was one of the first major uh, merchant processing companies called FFMC, and it was a roll-up of a bunch of small merchant processors as that industry evolved. First Data bought that what then was a public company, and that became the merchant processing side. So out of that evolution, a lot of talent was created, and other payments companies have come in. Check Free, where I was, moved here from Columbus, Ohio, specifically because it was a payment city, and we could bring in the payment talent to you know, really build a business with then there's 50,000 consumers paying their bills online through their banks. Today is probably 50 million. Um, so... And, and then off of those, you know, you have two or three big success stories like that, and there have been others. Then you then you just have companies spawned off of that. Talent leaves, go starts their own thing. So in Atlanta now, we're broad. We've got everything from software that runs banks that's been built in here mm-hmm. and, and sold up in the marketplace to uh, credit decisioning analytics businesses to lending businesses like Cabbage um, to bank infrastructure and compliance businesses to pure payments businesses. So we, we kind of cover all the various aspects of what it takes to run a financial institution. Uh, there's been evolution on the product side here and co- great companies created for years now. How is FinTech impacting the private equity industry? I, it's just a space that always has a lot of innovation. I mean, financial services by itself is just a big, big buyer of technology. And at the speed that technology moves, there's always the opportunity to to build a new company. You know, you mm-hmm. build one in a space, you go, you sell it, take a few years off, come back to that same space. You can probably build the next generation of that, that platform and go right back up again. And that, that happens time and time again. So FinTech is probably one of the, the biggest, if not the biggest, healthcare would be the biggest, but FinTech's one of the biggest uh, markets that PE investors like and, and VC investors like to put money into. I would think that a lot of fintech businesses are, are very early stage, probably too young for private equity. Is is that an active area for Well, investors? they all start off too young and then sure, some and grow up. Yeah, but there's plenty. There's actually plenty at all sectors. I was just sitting mm-hmm. down with a banker kind of going through um, the industry and various verticals. And yeah, there's a lot of small ones, but there's plenty of midsize. And if you think about the venture capital to growth capital, like a fulcrum fund to larger PE, like an Insight JMI to huge P like KKR and people that all those steps invest in Warburg at the top. All those mm-hmm. steps invest in fintech because there's businesses in every one of those sectors. And is there an aspect of this conference that you were looking forward to the most? You know, I actually was looking forward to this venue. So we really had a challenge with the, we, we lost the place we were in last year, oh, the Super Bowl coming to Atlanta kind of tossed all the 
hotel industry up in the air and and uh, Melanie Brandt found this place and I came out here and looked at it I was like this will be fantastic it's a little further out than we've been in the before but not much further and it's such a great venue and all the restaurants and and bars and things where people have to entertain themselves at night and just walking distance of the hotel so and then the the floor out there there's light because there's windows on one side yeah, of the trade floor that it is a beautiful you know these property. events are usually inside a solid box for right where you don't even know what the weather is yeah like outside. so it's open and refresh and um i think it's going to be a lot of fun I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. So I was excited about seeing all the company people and companies, but I wanted to see how people would enjoy the venue. Yeah, and I should say we're in the Alpharetta neighborhood of Atlanta. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's the day after the Super Bowl, or right. two, day, two days two after. Two days after, yeah. 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 So, all right, well, enjoy the rest of the conference, Jim. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Sure, thank you. Up next is an interview with Scott Lynch, a managing partner with DHG Private Equity. Scott, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So to start, can you provide a brief intro to DHG and how you work with private equity clients? Sure. So DHG is the the largest accounting firm based in the southern U.S. We're a top 20 firm. Um, We do business nationally uh, with a bunch of different industries with private equity being a focus of our firm. We, we like to try to partner with private equity firms so that we're serving them throughout the life cycle of their investments. So from the inception where we do transaction work to in the back end where we're helping them from an audit tax and other advisory services to when they sell the businesses to do a sell side quality of earnings. And recognizing that you're a national firm but based in the Southeast, can you talk a little bit about what the middle market deal environment in the Southeast looks like, given that we're in Atlanta. Sure, area. yeah. And I think that we're looking outside right now, and it's a sunny day. And with the weather here, uh, compared to some of our, our northern cities, uh, this, this is a nice place to live. And I think uh, it's driving a lot of businesses down this way. There's been a lot of incentives to move companies down uh, into the southern U.S. And, you know, we've, we've seen that in, in, in the deal space as well. People are or adding on businesses down here. We think that as evidenced by how many people are at this ACG Capital Connection, people are looking for deal flow in the South. And uh, it's been a, a huge growth of our firm as a result because we focus on the middle market businesses. And are there industries that are growing particularly fast down here? And are you seeing increased PE investment uh, targeting Southeast businesses? Yeah, so I'd say, I mean, we're, we're seeing a, a ton of business in the healthcare space. Mm-hmm. Uh, healthcare is our, one of our firm's largest industries. We have a healthcare consulting practice as well. Um, stuff like multi-site physician practices. Uh, I think if, you, if it ends with ology, then that's probably something that people are invested in right now. We're seeing a ton of that. Uh, we're also seeing uh, multi-site kind of car businesses. So that could be huh. collision centers or wheel cha- wheel centers or oil changes. And so there's a lot of that kind of roll up in that space hmm. uh, where people are putting those types of businesses together. Uh, and so that's been a, a large piece. Uh, also, I think the fitness space has been hot. If you think about businesses like Planet Fitness or Orange Theory, a lot of these franchise models or or what's happening is private equity is investing in a lot of their franchisees, Hmm. not necessarily the franchisor. So the franchisor may be owned by a mega private equity firm who puts a lot of money into that space. Uh, And you see uh, some of these middle market private equity firms buying large franchisees and rolling those up. 
And one of the most popular stories on our website last year looked at the new revenue recognition standards. And I understand that this is an area where DHG is helping its private equity clients. Can you give an overview of how that standard changed? Yeah, so it's gone into effect for public companies and it's going into effect this year for private companies. Mm -hmm. So it's it's becoming a focus uh, of when when private equity funds are looking at uh, these types of businesses. I think investors are starting to ask questions of how this is impacting the revenue of the businesses they own. I think what the big change was the change from realized or earned to uh, a performance obligation being satisfied. And that's kind of confusing, but it, it, it really just helps you divide the revenue of these multi-element arrangements up easier. And so there were standards of how you could separate it, and sometimes it was too hard, so they just would recognize it as one contract over the life of the contract, mm-hmm. where now they're separating the elements more and able to recognize. Sometimes it means you're recognizing something up front that you might have spread before, or sometimes it's spreading something you hadn't before. So it's different ways to look at that revenue stream. Hmm. And so right now, you know, it's hard to say is that positive or negative, the EBITDA, because what's happening is you really have to look at it by contract. And so whatever your performance obligations are in each individual contract, that's how you're going to choose to recognize the revenue. Okay. And what's another piece of it that we think about with revenue recognition, there's also the cost recognition piece huh. that you, you don't hear as much about, but there's there's opportunity to defer cost. And that, that was always something that was potentially possible. It was really hard under current gap, but under this gap, under this new this new standard, it allows us to defer costs like commissions across hmm. the, rev- the life of the revenue that's being recognized. So it matches the revenue and cost better. And so that that helps with before you might recognize commissions right up front. Now you can spread it over where, when you're recognizing the revenue. Hmm. And writing last fall, our reporter who wrote that story, she found that a number of private companies were reporting only slow progress toward adoption of the new standard. Is that consistent with what you're seeing? It's still consistent, unfortunately, uh-huh. is that the the business private businesses have been very slow to adopt. And I think there there's going to be a... A, a mad rush here this year for them to figure it all out. And so there's going to be a lot of projects where people have to spend significant amounts of time going through contract by contract, figuring out what these performance obligations are mm-hmm. and figuring out how to divide the price of that contract across those obligations and figure out how should I recognize each individual obligation. Hmm. So it's going to be a difficult process for a lot of these companies. What's what's helpful is there's now public companies out there that have done this already. So from the, the disclosures that are required for the public companies is a lot more than the private companies. There still is more disclosures around this for the private companies that they'll have to have in their financials. But what these private companies should be able to do is is find a public company that's similar to theirs and and uh, use that as sort of a baseline of how they should go about doing it. Got it. A little roadmap that they right, can... Right. Interesting. Okay. And how are you seeing private equity firms adapt in terms of the growth stories that they communicate to buyers? I imagine they're going to have to just communicate differently. Well, yeah. And it's been interesting, without the, even without this standard, is that there's been a movement over the last several years to private equity funds thinking about EBITDA in terms of cash EBITDA or billings EBITDA. Mm -hmm. So almost a non-gap look at EBITDA because ultimately cash is king for these 
these businesses. And so they're investing on in a cash flow stream. And so just because gap requires you to defer revenue or not defer it doesn't mean the cash changes. Hmm. And so there's been a lot of focus on what is the cash of this business generating? What's it generating on, on, on a recurring basis? And, and so sometimes funds will even not even think about what, I mean, you have to have gap for your financials, but for how they analyze the business, sometimes they're coming back to what cash is for, hmm. the, for the revenue. And so that's one thing that they're doing. The other is I think you just would have to have other metrics to make sure you show how the business is growing. So whether it's a number of customers or monthly recurring revenue, what, what what's the other metrics that you have that might be a way to analyze the business and show that it's growing? It could be number of stores, same store sales. There's there's other ways to look at it to kind of take away the, the impact of some of this deferred revenue. Hmm. I see. And this year, DHG became an official sponsor of growth of ACG Global. Can you talk about the value that the firm sees in this kind of partnership? Yeah, so I went to my first Intergrowth about nine years ago, and you know it was a interesting experience. I went with one other colleague, and uh, we we went to the event just to figure it out, just to figure out what it was all about, and went there and realized that hey, we're we're pretty far behind our competitors as far as is our you know as far as how we're presenting ourselves at this event. Mm -hmm. And we realized that they are, that obviously they're getting benefit from it. And there was, it was just something that we hadn't seen before. And so we decided that day that we were going to make sure we become more involved in ACG. Mm -hmm. And from that, I became involved in the, the Charlotte board for, for a while and then was on the global board. And now I'm actually chairing Intergrowth this year. And so it's just been a huge part for our firm. Every year we we look forward to the event because we know it's going to be important to to help and let people know who DHG is. And so this year we decided to step up our sponsorship to be uh, the highest level of sponsorship, um, and and they only let one accounting firm be in that spot. So we're we're definitely privileged and happy to be in that spot. So. And you mentioned that you're chairing the event this year. Can you talk about what aspect of the conference that you're most looking forward to? Well, I guess I would probably say I'm looking forward to see A-Rod speak. That's mm-hmm. going to be pretty fun. I, you know, I've seen him uh, in business. We've seen him uh, on different transactions uh, at times. We know he's out there investing, so we've, we've heard about that. Also see him on, on the Shark Tank occasionally. Yep. <laughs> so when he guest, he guest stars there, I think it'll be fun to see, you know, He's kind of got his own family office feel to what he's doing, which is interesting. Uh, you know, one thing we've been talking about a lot is the family office world and how that's mm-hmm. changed investing. And you got someone like him with, with obviously he did very well in sports and, and now he's taken that and he's mentoring people, he's investing in businesses and he, you know, it's, it's just been cool to see him make that transition. Mm-hmm. And I hear that from a lot of people who, you know, once they learn that he's speaking at the event, um, know him from sports, but haven't right. really, you know, kept up with him. Maybe the occasional shark take appearance, but um, right. not really sure what he's doing business wise. So I think he's invested in a, in a lot of, a lot of businesses and at, at, at all stages. So it's mm-hmm. going to be interesting to, to hear him talk about that side of things. I mean, it's, it's nice to see, and I think we had Magic Johnson a few years back, who's had yeah. a similar experience where he took his his fame and, and turned it into helping businesses. So. Mm-hmm. And we should say for those interested in attending the event, uh, that'll be May 6th through 8th in Orlando this year. Right. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today, Scott, and enjoy the rest of the conference here in Atlanta. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.